take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. Hebrews 11, verse 21 will be our text this morning. And we're returning back after our time of Christmas messages and New Year's messages back to Hebrews, where we come and we find by faith an example given to us of Jacob. And Jacob comes to the end of his life and his faith is evident and manifest in two different ways according to our our text. And the first way that we see his faith is evident is that he speaks forth the word of God. And by speaking forth the word of God, Jacob sets his eyes upon the promises of God. And the second action we see of Jacob in which his faith, faith is manifested is that he worships God. He responds to the revelation and the sovereignty of God in his life with worship. So, as Jacob is dying, he comes to this point and he speaks forth the word of God and he worships God. And these are the examples given to us to encourage us in the faith as well. And so let us hear this word of God in verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. This is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of it. And as you read this short example of Jacob, you might be wondering, why does God the Holy Spirit give us this particular moment of Jacob's as the example of faith when you consider all of the monumental moments of Jacob's life. You think of Jacob and how he built his wealth through supernatural means of building his livestock from that of his father Laban. What an example that would have been. Or you think about the the scene where Jacob wrestles with the pre-incarnate Christ. What an example that would have been of faith. But as God gives us the final account of Jacob, he doesn't give us any of those events. He gives us this event that we might just simply pass over and not really think about too much and see it as an example of faith. He just gives us this example where he's blessing Joseph's children. What we have to recognize is this blessing of Joseph's children actually encapsulates the entirety of his pilgrimage. It is the capstone of a life that was lived faithfully to the Lord according to the promises of the Lord. And it's the example that we see where he puts his stake in the ground trusting upon the Lord Jesus Christ. There's several reasons why this is given that encourage us We see here with Jacob that the natural difficulties of age did not affect his faith. The hardships that come with aging did not prevent him in sharing God's word and worshiping God. We see that even at the very end of his life in a foreign land, he's still clinging to God's word that was first revealed to to Abraham. We see that he acknowledges in this moment God's leading through all of his afflictions, that everything that he had gotten, gone through, that the Lord has led him through as a shepherd. He acknowledges that God rescued him from all of the things that he had faced. He acknowledges in this final account the Son of God. 
And finally, we see he prophesies God's word by looking into the future, despite his current circumstances of being in Egypt. And so, where do we find Jacob in this scene in verse 21? Jacob is said is, is dying. And so what we see here is Jacob finishes well. And it's interesting in these few verses here, verse 20, 21, and 22, we're given the three examples of these patriarchs, three figures that end their life well. The particular point that they find themselves, whether it was Isaac blessing Jacob and Esau was when he was dying. Jacob, it specifically says when he's dying. And then when we come to Joseph in verse 22, it says at the end of his life, we're given three examples in a row of people at the end of their life that ended well. And the particular point in time for Jacob is the 147th year of his life. He's reflecting upon a long life, and 17 of those years, the 17 final years of his life, were not in the promised land, experiencing the blessings of the promised land, but rather they were in Egypt because the promised land was in famine. And so when we come to him here at the end, what we find him is not in a place where he would like to be, but rather he's in Egypt. And so what makes this particular part of his life so remarkable is that it seems to be the point in his life that would have been the most disappointing point of his life. It seems like this would have been a point of his life where he's looking back upon the, upon the promises of, of God and saying, why haven't I received these wonderful blessings in life? But that's not what we see. We don't see Jacob being disappointed. We don't see Jacob being distraught. Rather, we see him responding to God's word by worshiping God. And so why should he have been disappointed? Well, he was not in the promised land. And when he had been in the promised land, he had children. He had been beginning to see the promises fulfilled. And then he's removed from Egypt. All of a sudden, his, I mean, excuse me, removed from the promised land to Egypt. When things seem to be fulfilling themselves finally in his life, that's when the Lord removes him from the promised land. And so how do we see him? Well, these two actions, and the first is that he's prophesying. He's looking forward to a future that he would not personally experience. And you see it in the phrase that he blessed each of Joseph's sons. He blessed the sons of Joseph. And we have to turn back to Genesis chapter 48 to see this blessing. So if you would take your Bibles and turn to... To Genesis 48, and we'll examine what it says back here in this blessing of the sons of Joseph. The first thing that uh, Jacob does with Joseph's children is he actually adopts Joseph's children. We see that in verse 5 of, 40, of chapter 48 of Genesis. And now to your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, they are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of your brothers in their inheritance. So he's saying to Joseph, your two firstborn children are now my children. They will receive my inheritance just as my other children have. And notice how he says, Reuben and Simeon, which were the first two born, for Jacob by Leah. 
Now, why is this important here? Why is this adoption of uh, Joseph's children taking place? There's, there's two reasons. The first reason is actually that Reuben, his firstborn by Leah, had forfeited his status as the firstborn. In fact, you see that in chapter 49, in verses 3 through 4, where Jacob goes to bless Reuben. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. But after he says this acknowledgement that he is the firstborn, notice what he goes on to say, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. You are not then the, the inheritor of my legacy, is what he's saying. And he, he says, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And you can see why he would have been disinherited in some sense from being the firstborn. And so then he looks to Joseph. Now you might be thinking, Joseph wasn't born until many children after how could Joseph then receive this blessing? Well, Joseph was the firstborn of Rachel. And why is that significant? Well, you know the story of Jacob. Jacob wanted to marry Rachel. But his father-in-law tricked him and tricked him into marrying Leah. So his first, the firstborn of the wife that was supposed to be the wife of of the promise. We see this in Genesis chapter 30, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. So, in fact, Joseph was the firstborn, according to Rachel. And there's something about the firstborn child. According to what would later become law under Moses was that the firstborn was to receive a double portion, a double inheritance. So his adopting of Joseph's two children and saying to them that they are going to now receive an inheritance is actually to give Joseph what? A double portion. And this is why, on his deathbed, that Jacob adopts the children of Joseph, and that way Joseph will receive, in essence, a double portion of the inheritance. So he's naming Joseph to be the firstborn here. Now, in terms of the, the actual blessing, we see it working itself out beginning in verse 13. It says, And Joseph took them both... Ephraim in his right hand. Now, this is important. Ephraim's in the right hand toward his father's left hand. So the, the right hand is the, going to be the hand of blessing. So he puts Ephraim towards, it says Israel, that's Jacob, towards his left hand. And Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand. So what Joseph is doing is he's giving his children in this specific order so that the right hand of blessing, the stronger blessing, will not come upon Ephraim, but will actually come upon Manasseh. So what Joseph is doing is he's organizing this for his father, who's actually blind at this point so that the blessing will land on Manasseh. But notice what happens in verse 14. 
And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger. And numerous times now we've seen this in the book of Genesis. It's, where it's, it's not the firstborn that receives the blessing, but oftentimes the secondborn. And so he lays his right hand on the head of Ephraim. Now that's not the hand that Joseph had organized for, to go upon his head. It says, who was the younger? And his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So Jacob does this uh, as, a, as a blind man and also against what Joseph was, was trying to arrange. And so what is significant about this is that Ephraim is intentionally chosen over Manasseh. And you might think this was a mistake because he was blind or uh, maybe that uh, he just was doing this by accident, but this is actually the revealed will of God that Jacob follows. And you see that in verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall become a people, and he shall also be great. Nevertheless, his younger shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. And so, in other words, what Jacob does in this final blessing, in giving this, this double portion, is that he is blessing Ephraim according to the revealed will of God. How did he know this would happen? Because what we see is if you continue reading after the book of Genesis and you get into, particularly into the prophets, later revelation confirms that Ephraim becomes the superior tribe. In fact, the northern kingdom of Israel is oftentimes just simply referred to in a general term as Ephraim showing their superiority as a tribe. So Jacob declares that this would happen prior to it happening. He says that Ephraim will be the greater tribe, that Ephraim will receive the greater blessing. And so Jacob is, is speaking forth simply the word of God before it happened. And how does he do that? Well, because God revealed it to him. And what was this blessing itself? It's in verses 15 and 16. And you see part of it in verse 20 as well. But beginning in verse 20, it begins by this. And notice the blessing, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God has, who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys and in them let my name be carried on. And the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Notice what happens here. He first relates himself to the promises given to Abraham and Isaac, and he relates himself to those promises that were given to the Abrahamic covenant. And then he goes on to say this phrase here, that the angel 
who has redeemed me from all evil. Who is that angel? That's the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. He's claiming the Lord Jesus Christ and saying that redemption is, is found in Him. He goes on to say that my name would be carried on in them. Again, this is specifically related to the, the, the Abrahamic covenant is that they would be fruitful, that they would be faithful, that they would carry on the name of Israel. And so he's stating these things that are going to happen, that they would grow into a multitude. And you think of the promises that were given to Abraham, that your offspring would be like the sand of the seashore. If you can look up into the stars and count the stars, there will be your inheritance. You think of those promises that Jacob is once again clinging to. And again, it's so important to see Jacob is dying and he is not in the promised land. He's in Egypt. And yet, as he's in Egypt dying, he's still clinging to these promises of God that will happen. He says this, that they would be populous in the midst of the earth. And that is, let those that call upon the name of the Lord populate the earth. He's calling for them to be able to go forth and be fruitful and multiply in a place where it didn't seem possible. In verse 20, you see another portion of this blessing. By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God, make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And that is that they would be renowned, that they would be known, that people would be aware of them. And then Jacob goes to proclaim what would take place in the future. In verse 21, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. How does he know that? Verse 22, Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. What is faith? Is faith believing in the things that you can see? Is faith just simply believing in the things that we can tangibly hold and we realize at this moment? Well, that's not how faith is defined. Faith is in those things that are unseen. And Jacob can't actually see any of these things physically. He doesn't get to experience any of these things. But as he's on his dying bed, he's still clinging to them that they will happen. Jacob is simply speaking forth the word of God and as he dies and hasn't received the things that he had been told his whole entire life of why they traveled the way they did, why he lived the way he did, why he was raised the way he was raised, he hasn't experienced it. But by faith, he continues to cling to it and declare it. It's incredible. He declares something of a land that he himself does not own or have control over, but he himself acts as if he's lord of the land, as if he's the owner of the land. How many of you would go to look at a field and portion it off to your children, a field that you don't actually own? That's what Jacob's doing on his deathbed. This land will be your children's. He doesn't own it. But he's saying, this will be your land. And so the irony is a dying man in Egypt gives out portions of land in Canaan 
land which he did not own. But he did. Because he had the promise of God that it would be his. He had the promise of God that it would be of his and his children's land, that they would populate this land, and that this would be the means that God brings about the promised Messiah that would crush the head of the serpent. And so while we might think he didn't own it in terms of having a deed of land, he did in fact own it. It was his by right to declare and say, this is for our children. You think of this and what this means for us. Sometimes our circumstances and trials that we face in life uh, make us think that maybe perhaps God's promises are not being fulfilled for us. But what we see with Jacob is, is that our circumstances, our trials, our sufferings, the setbacks we face in life are no indication that God has forgotten about us or that he has ceased in acting for us and for our good according to his perfect plan for our life. Often, the circumstances that we, we face are those things that shape us and mold us and actually fortify our faith. As we consider our pilgrimage, let us look at Jacob as this example, as clinging to the word and declaring the promises of God. And this leads us to the next thing that he does as he's dying, and that is that he just simply worships. And as we see worship, he responds to God's sovereignty in his life. In Hebrews, it states that he's bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Well, in chapter 47, verse 31, you see a phrase that indicates that this is what the author of Hebrews was taking from. It says, and he said, swear to me, and he swore to him, then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. And that bowed is that, uh, that posture of worship. Hebrews makes it explicit, bowing in worship. In Hebrews, it says over the head of his staff. In Genesis, it says over upon the head of his bed. There's no contradiction. It's just simply giving us two different angles of the same act. What we need to know is despite one saying over his staff and one over his bed, is that Jacob dies worshiping God. He goes out of this world clinging to the promise, responding to the revelation of God, worshiping God all the way to the end. How do you die well? Well, that, that, there can't be a better way, way to go. When you think about Jacob, a man once known for deception and called a deceiver, becomes a man of worship, even at the pain of death. A man of instability and movement and constantly on the move, becomes a man fixated on the promise of God, so much so that he doesn't have to actually physically reveal it to, to have it. And so he worships. Now, why does he worship here? Well, specifically, the reason he worships is because of something he asks his son, Joseph, to promise him of. And you see it in verse 29 of chapter 47 of Genesis, says, and when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me 
in their burying place. And he answered, that is, Joseph answered, I will do as you said. And as a result of this, he says, swear to me. And then upon Joseph swearing to him, he then worships God. Why would he care he'd be dead? Why would he care where he'd be buried? You ever think about that? He's in Egypt. Why is this such an important promise that he has Joseph promise to him that he would do this? I mean, think we often do think about that. I don't care. I'll be, I'll be gone anyways. Whatever happens will happen. I'll be gone. I'll be in heaven, right? Should we care? Should we think this way? Or actually, should we think about what happens not only after we're gone, but our final voice of testimony of Christ? You see, burial was actually of incredible importance. Thomas Manton, the the Puritan, says, in their society, the grave was a type of their communion in heaven. And he goes on to say, This is that he worshipped upon the top of his rod, that is his staff, saying, I am going to God in Christ and to Abraham and Isaac to dwell with them in the promised land. End quote. And so in other words, it was a testimony that Jacob, even in death, had clung to the promises of God that he would be buried there in the land of, of, of Canaan as symbolizing what he is experiencing in the eternal glory and presence of Christ. And so if you think of it like this, the promised land itself was pointing to a greater land, right? Right? We're not concerned about some square mileage in the Middle East. We're not living for that. We're living for a new heavens and a new earth. So were they. The author of Hebrews makes it so clear. They were not waiting for a land that was built by human hands, but they're waiting for something greater. But the symbol of that The testimony of that was that they would receive an actual physical land. That they would receive those promises. And so as he goes out worshiping God, knowing this will take place, it's because this is his final testimony. You know, today this is often neglected in Christian circles. It's often neglected in terms of our thought. You know, oftentimes, and, and, and this, is, this is just a remark for us to consider, is that oftentimes when we think about a funeral, we avoid the word funeral because of whatever negative connotations we think of come with it, though there shouldn't be. And we say, well, this is a celebration of life, and that's fine. But really what that life should be celebrating is that it is now receiving the inheritance. And that, that's where our focus should be is upon God's grace in a person's life that redeemed them and rescued them. And then that final testimony of what Christ had done in their life, the final opportunity is actually at the funeral. It's such a pivotal moment in our journey that 
uh, actually not only when we die is that final testimony, but burial itself. Because what he's speaking of here is where he's going to be buried. Burial is the final testimony of our belief in the final resurrection. When we're buried, what we are saying is that we will be raised again and this life, this physical body that we have that goes to ashes will actually be one day resurrected. That's the significance of Christian burial. In other words, when we think of Christian burial, we should be thinking of Christian burial much like Jacob did in saying, I want my bones to be carried into the land of Canaan as a final testimony. What is our final testimony? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4.14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That's our testimony when we die. And the final statement that we get to have is uttered by someone else that this body will one day be raised from corruption to the incorruptible body, the glorious body that will be given at the resurrection. Our final word of the gospel is our death. We don't like to think about that. But really, when we think about the pilgrimage, what our aim in life is and what, where we're going is to be living in tents like Abraham did waiting for that celestial city where everything is aimed for the glory that is to be revealed to us. And Jacob's final word to the watching world, and it was the watching world because Joseph has to get permission from, from Pharaoh to be able to do this. The final testimony was that God fulfilled his promises to Jacob. That must be our desire, is that God fulfilled his promises to his people, that God will. And that is our final testimony. We can see why he worships. We can see why he responds to God as he, he does. Now, notice in the text, in this response, what it says he does. It says, Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed, or... In Hebrews, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. I think it's important we note that because the text makes it a point. He is in a posture of worship. He physically is doing something in this worship. And so what was in his soul... What was in his heart is manifested by his bodily presence. And so we recognize to be human is to be body and soul. We worship both body and soul. That is, the, that is the whole person. And it's significant that he does this when he's dying. Have you ever been at the, 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 the bedside of a person that's towards the end of their life? and ask them to get up out of bed and bow themselves down or to get up and do anything. No, you don't do that. Sometimes it's, it's actually physically impossible. And so the whole point is that the text is making of us is that he does this intentional act of worship which would have required a great deal of strenuous effort. 
You know, getting out of bed is easy when you're not dying. And sometimes even when you're not dying, it's hard to get out of bed. He does it when he's dying. He does it when he's at the end of his life and his eyesight is now gone from him. But he nonetheless makes this effort that obviously would have caused pain. But what we have to recognize is he goes through this because his posture was a demonstration of the affections of his heart. So what was going on inside of his heart and his mind manifests itself through this physical effort. And let me just make this one statement. Is Jacob will not worship without sacrifice. It wasn't a matter of ease for him to worship the Lord. It was actually great difficulty. And we can only imagine the pain. Worship takes effort. It takes both body and soul. And sometimes we see that worship comes with pain. And I know that many, many will gather to worship under pain. Why do they do that? Because it's in their heart that they want to worship their Lord and God for what He has done. Many will, over the years, you've seen this and I've seen this, many will sit through a service where it's physically painful to sit through a worship service, but they do it. Why? Because they love the Lord their God. So we recognize worship at times comes with pain. But it was evidence of his gratitude to God's sovereignty over his life. In fact, in chapter 48, he recounts God's sovereignty over his life. He does it twice. But in verse 15, he says, to, he says this phrase, The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. That's a remarkable statement. Because all of the hardship that he has gone through, all of the difficulties, he says, God has guided me according to his sovereign hand. He has been a shepherd to me, which means he has exhibited tender care over me. Even when Jacob was a person that we didn't like as a deceiver, he acknowledged that God was his shepherd, that God was guiding him. Through it all, God had governed his life. And as he gets to the end of his life and he thinks about the past, he says, God has been my shepherd through affliction. You think of his wife Rachel dying prematurely. He was duped by his father-in-law and forced into work and servitude and mistreated he had a life of affliction. His son Joseph was, was kidnapped and betrayed by his brothers. His sons were murderers. The Puritan William Gouge lists at least 20 major afflictions recorded in Scripture. Yet when Jacob looks back upon the hardships of God's sovereignty in his life, his response is the same of Job when Job lost everything, and that is... He worships. He worships the Lord as God. He recognizes that God was tender to him and cared for him. When life beats you up, it doesn't feel like God is being tender and caring for us. But, but, but perhaps maybe we should, like Jacob, recognize that sometimes getting beat up in life is God's actual care for us and shaping us. This is truly a remarkable example of faith for us. 
And, and it's one that we need to be aware of. It's one that I need to be aware of because as life takes its twists and turns with things you're, you're not expecting, you think things are going a certain way and then they go, they go in opposite direction. It can be discouraging and you can, you can get distraught and wonder why are things falling apart here? Why is this happening? But what we should be reminded of is that we have a God that's perfect, that's good, that is sovereign, and that He is in control of all things. And He's working things out actually for your good. That if you're in Christ, nothing ever will befall you that is for your bad. And that's what he recognizes here where he says, God has been my shepherd. So when we face afflictions, to repeat what was said earlier, they don't happen to destroy our faith, but rather they, they fortify our faith. And so Jacob, by faith, dying, worships the God who had led him his entire life. And he does this when he is told that he will be buried in the land. And here's what we have to recognize. Worship is an anticipation of the life to come. Worship is an anticipation of the life to come. Our, our belief that we will eternally be worshiping God is a life that is practiced in worship now. You think of what in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, what Paul says is the present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then he goes on to say, this is your spiritual act of worship. And present your bodies as a living sacrifice is, an, is a present active indicative of the reality of a Christian life in light of the mercies of God. As Paul says, is that we're continually to be serving for the Lord and this is our act of worship. So we can rightly say is that the Christian life is to be a life of worship. It's to be a life of worship. And worship now, right now, is our testimony to the world that we believe there is a God worthy to be worshipped. Did we ever think about that? When we gather in the corporate worship of the saints, what we are testifying someone drives by and they see your car in the church parking lot, you testify that there's a risen Savior that you serve. When you, when you leave Sunday morning and your priority is to go and be in the house of God rather than to do something else, you just testify to your neighbors that you believe there is a risen Savior. When your life revolves around the God who created you, you have made the testimony that worship is important because there's a God that is worthy to be worshipped. And so as we see worship is a constantly throughout is a constant throughout life you think of some of the things that paul speaks of is he speaks of gratitude to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ always. He says that a number of times in his epistles. He says that we are to be rejoicing always, that we're to be praying without ceasing, we're to be in service to one another always. The key word is always, without ceasing. These are acts of worship. That is that spiritual act of worship that is ongoing in a life of worship. But then we also know the importance that God calls us to the corporate worship. And so both aspects, a life of worship and the gathering of the saints in corporate worship is that act of worship. And here's the reality, and I don't say this to be offensive to anyone, but just as a reality that we have to recognize, 
We can't say that we worship God here as a spiritual act of worship and neglect the gathering of the saints. We just can't. They, they, they actually are intricately related to one another. And one results and anticipates the gathering that takes place on the Lord's Day where we recognize the risen Savior together. And so not only is it to be a, 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 an ongoing act of worship, but it is also to be something that we do intentionally. Now, through our lives, we know it changes according to physical ability. But what do we see in Jacob? The act of worship never ceases regardless of physical ability. You know, I, I, I think of some of the reformers like John Calvin, when he could no longer walk to church, they would put him on a, like a dolly type of thing and put him into the pulpit. Many of the Puritans could no longer get into their pulpit and preach, so the church would gather to their bedside while they're preaching the Word of God. So what happens with Jacob, we might say, is remarkable, but actually, it's, it's what we, when we look in church history, we see it's something that's common among the saints of God is that they go out worshiping God and proclaiming the word of God. It's not because they were tougher than us. I think they had a, oftentimes a greater priority to us than us. Jacob never ceases proclaiming God's word and he never ceases worshiping God, even as he's dying. Can we see why this example was given as our example? of the demonstration that he does this by faith? I think the scripture is self-evident. Let me ask you, has Christ rescued you from sin? Has Christ rescued you from sin? Have you, have you rested in Christ? And now do you, are you aware of the eternal inheritance that you have awaiting for you that is by promise that one day you'll, you'll have a glorious new body that is not a body wrecked with pain, but one that is a glorious one free of pain. Does that produce the affections of your heart to respond and worship? Does the once for all sacrifice of Christ motivate your heart to cling to his promises of an eternal inheritance and, and drive you to worship him now? Think of some of these things as Christ promises us an eternal home. Christ promises us that he is building us a home even now. And that is for those that have trusted in him. It is for those that have forsaken their own works and rested in his completed work. And he promises to keep us until our final breath and welcome us home. We, like Jacob, will persevere because God preserves us. Let me ask you, does that stir your heart to lean upon his word through afflictions and worship despite what it may cost in life? Does reflecting upon the word of God motivate your heart and stir it to respond in worship to God because you know he's worthy of it and we are not worthy of his grace? Jacob provides for us an example to look at a man that was moved by grace, by the grace of God, 
and to recognize that God had preserved him and kept him. And it manifests itself in how he deals with God's word and how he responds to the word of God, which is worship. May we do the same. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your revealed will that teaches us of our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have freedom from sin, that we have been rescued from the slavery of sin that once bound us. Father, we take great joy in knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. May our hearts exhibit this in, by rejoicing and responding to your word in worship as well. Father, we pray your grace and your help that you would preserve us, that you would keep us in your hand always. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.